In the previous episode of Error Code, I talked with Mike Walker about the Hackasat program. We talked specifically about some of the orbital dynamics that will be required for the Capture the Flag team to be successful in this year's game. This year, they're hacking a live satellite, Moonlighter, in orbit around the Earth. To give you an idea how different these games are, here's some of the challenges from the very first Hackasat in 2020. Challenge Zero. Here's what we know. An attacker has obtained access to the satellite's ground station through an internet-facing website. Once they obtained access, they kicked us out. The challenge? Teams must regain network access to the ground station. Here's how they do it. An internet-facing website exists on the same subnet as the ground station. Teams must identify and exploit a vulnerability in the web server, then use it as a foothold within the network to pivot to the ground station and gain access. Challenge number one. Here's what we know. Having access to the ground station means we can attempt communication, but the satellite is spinning out of control, which complicates everything. The challenge. Teams must regain communication with the satellite. Here's how they do it. To get started, teams must set the command and telemetry rates appropriately and the power output to maximum. Because the satellite is spinning, additional link margin is required. The teams receive periodic telemetry, but are not able to command the vehicle. Based on the review of the anomaly resolution section in the user's guide, they realize that to increase the link margin, they should increase radio output power and decrease link rate. They command the radio to high power and low rate mode and regain communications with the satellite. The link is limited to low rate, meaning that what they can send and receive from the satellite is limited. These challenges have evolved, and really, the teams have evolved along with the challenges. They're ready to start hacking a live satellite in orbit. This is the story of what's needed for the Capture the Flag competition at DEF CON 31 that will be hosted for the first time on a live satellite orbiting 400 kilometers above the Earth. I'm Robert Famosi. This is Error Code. My name is Mike Walker. Uh, my hacker handle during Hackasat is Cydonia. Um, and you know, my experience, I have um, multiple degrees in aerospace engineering um, from Purdue University. Um, and I have 15 years experience in aerospace and defense, uh, doing modeling and simulation and embedded flight software. Mike works for Cromulence, a company that has deep experience designing capture the flag competitions. Uh, yeah, Cromulence is a small business, uh, and our um, our background came out of uh, the legitimate business syndicate that used to run um, DEFCON CTF for several years. Um, and you know now we're uh, a business uh, with about sixty employees, uh, and we do you know full spectrum cybersecurity uh, with expertise in vulnerability research, uh, reverse engineering, and running cyber competitions like Hackasat. For many years, Legit BS was running DEFCON CTFs. That involves deciding on the type of play, either Jeopardy or King of the Hill, and then defining the challenges. Mike and his team are adding to that a lot of math. They're making the CTF a little more complicated for hackers. 
Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it, normally in CTFs, you know, you're just talking about attacking some infrastructure that's on the ground. Uh, and with Hackasat, you know, we put space physics into the mix, or as everyone loves to complain about, you know, jokingly during the challenge, you know, there's all this space math involved uh, in order to do, uh, to do you know, that you have to deal with in order to do um, attacks. So, you know, I love the space math, which makes it fun for me. In a normal DEFCON DTF, there are 16 teams in the final. There aren't that many for Hackasat. So last year in um, Hackasat 3, we had eight teams, but this year we've downselected to five teams that will be competing in the final event. So there are five teams, but if I understand correctly, there's only one Moonlighter. How's that going to work? This year, we only have one, uh, one live satellite. Satellites are expensive. We've got to build them and then launch them, test them and launch them into space, right? That costs uh, the U.S. government a lot of money. Um, and time, um, you know, and that's a difference between this year and last year, you know, in all the past years, everyone has sort of had their own asset that they could protect and then they could attack other people's asset. This year, everybody will be on the same asset, which is Moonlighter, one asset in low Earth orbit. So that's interesting. One satellite, not five. And it seems one of the possible game scenarios might be that the teams compete over who gets control over the satellite. Uh, well, I won't give away style of the game right yet because we haven't uh, we haven't quite decided or released that information. Fair enough. The teams will be notified shortly before the game what the criteria will be. But there are some baseline assumptions that we can make. For example, this Moonlighter software is representative of real satellite software. It's not training wheels or special CTF software. The whole way through Hackasat, we have been using you know systems that that even NASA uses, like a lot of flight software we're using as part of NASA's core flight software, which they run on real satellites. Uh, but in some ways, things will be, we, we do need to simplify things in some respects to, you know, so that they can be exploited and used during a 24 or 36 hour game. Um, so there will be some simplification um, in the, the way we, we sort of present the game to the user or to the, the players. Um, but, you know, it is still a real satellite and we're still giving, and we're giving them access to, I guess, uh, an interface control, uh, you know, specification that is realistic. So it's going to be very realistic. We just have the needle we have to thread as game developers is, uh, is what we give them access to and, and how we keep it, in scope for the length of the game. Because if we just gave them full access to like a whole satellite um, and all the flight software on it, it would be it would be too much, right, for the, the length of the game. So it, it's mostly any non-realism is mostly about scope control of the game, at least in my opinion. Given that this is a live satellite, for the qualifiers this year, and there were about 700 teams that competed to be one of the top five finalists, did Hackasat make any changes in anticipation of a live satellite event didn't make any changes to the format of qualifiers it stayed as jeopardy but we did introduce a new category called uh, the magician and that category required you to upload uh binaries that sort of were executed by a service um and then would download you back data uh instead of just you know interacting with the service directly via like ssh and the idea behind that was to get people used to the idea that like you might need to upload a binary or a command set, and then it's going to happen 
in some time and you'll receive things back later and you need to get used to that sort of mechanic. So we introduced people to that mechanic with the magician category where they had to, you know, upload things to an asynchronous service. It would go use their upload and then return them data. Um, and, and that category we think went really well. Uh, you know, people, people played that a lot. Um, and those challenges got a lot of solved. So we think that especially the finalist teams should have gotten at least a brief introduction to the, this concept, right, of, of async, things happening asynchronously. So the style for the qualifiers was Jeopardy. What does that mean? Well, there are two types of CTFs. One is Jeopardy, and like the TV show, there are categories across the top and levels of difficulty below. Teams have to work their way through the board to collect various points. That's perhaps the most common CTF style that you'll find. What you typically see at DEFCON CTFs in the finals there is the second style, which is known as King of the Hill or Attack and Defend. This is where teams attack other servers and defend their own for points. Um, but it is interesting to think about just from, you know, we can speculate, right? Um, hosting a King of the Hill on a single asset might be interesting or it might not be interesting. Uh, you know, with all the physics involved to contact a satellite, you need to wait for a ground station to come into view. A traditional King of the Hill could be really exciting or it could be really boring, right? Uh, one team might just get control and then you don't have enough contacts to really fight each other, right? So those are the kind of things that we we're, we are considering in the game design is how to make sure the game stays interesting um, when we have such limited contact windows to the satellite. You know, you don't always get, uh, you don't have full access to it all the time. We have to wait for it to come overhead of one of our, you know, our dishes and then we can send up commands to get telemetry. So uh, I won't tell you what the game is, but it, it is an interesting problem to solve, how to keep it interesting um, when, when you don't have a lot of access to the satellite. So in the previous episode of Aerocode, Mike and I discussed some of the basic space physics confronting this challenge, such as the teams and admins alike only have a limited amount of time to contact the satellite as it passes a given ground station. And even then, there's limited bandwidth available for uploads and downloads. This isn't some simulation. This is real. But this shouldn't be too surprising. Legitimate BS, they're known for taking risks at the DEFCON finals. I recalled when Legitimate BS would introduce something that, well, may not have been done before. Like the one year they introduced Clemency, an operating system based on Middle Indian, which means the teams first had to figure that out before competing. And for a lot of them, they had to throw out their tools that they had counted on using and create new ones on the fly. The point here is that Hackasat 4, hosting a game on a satellite in orbit, is a huge risk for admins and teams alike. I mean, it's a friggin' satellite in space. There could be communications problems. There could be satellite problems. There could be massive solar storm that will fries every piece of circuitry. There could also be real-world problems that have nothing to do with the level of play or the challenges that have been created. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And you just brought up, you know, what keeps me up at night about this challenge, right? And it's a lot of stuff. You know, the first risk is um, launches don't go according to plan. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, the launch failing uh, because the rockets were on are pretty reliable. It, it's outside chance that could happen. But there are weather delays, things get you know, pushed back, 
Um, you can get bumped off of your launch vehicle, although we don't think that's going to happen to us uh, at this stage. So Moonlighter is a CubeSat that was successfully launched on board CRS-28 on June 5th, 2023. So we can cross that worry off the list. It's in orbit. But still, there are other concerns that keep Mike up at night. After that, you need you know you need your small satellite to be released, uh, which takes more time. You know the people who control uh, the release need to do it. Um, after that, you need to bring your satellite through commissioning, uh, which is you basically make sure everything is working correctly, right? Uh, you don't want to go running, you know, your mission, which in our case is the cybersecurity game, without making sure everything works first. So you have to go through commissioning. And then we need to test our game. And all of that has to happen uh, for us before DEF CON. Uh, so the schedule is pretty tight, um, but we're, we're optimistic and things are, are on track, you know, as far as we can tell. So as I produce this episode, Mike and his team, they're heads down. They're checking everything to make sure the satellite and the game will be working in August for DEF CON 31. Even so, there are other concerns. Um, after that, there's a whole nother slew of problems that can happen in space, right? Um, the first of which I think you brought up contact windows. Um, you know, we're paying for time on a, a ground station network. Um, however, a higher priority customer could come along. Somebody could be having an emergency with their satellite during our finals game. Um, and we could technically get bumped. Uh, from our ground stations, uh, which would really put a wrench in the works, right? You know, you're planning on this happening, and it's just be like, oh, someone's having an emergency, and you don't, you no longer get that contact window. Uh, you know, you no longer get to use the antenna. So that's frightening um, from a game designer perspective. Um, and then m- much more unlikely, you know, small satellites aren't aren't really designed with the same robustness as like a big GPS satellite. Um, so you know. Satellites like Moonlighter are more susceptible to things like space weather, um, you know, and electromagnetic events that happen in the upper atmosphere and magnetosphere. Um, but the good news is that we're running our game pretty quickly after launch, so the probability of that affecting us is rather rather low. So we still haven't talked about what might be possible with the game. Let's talk a little bit more about attacks used in a past Hackasat. Yeah, so in Hackasat three, uh, we. We gave them, I would call it a non-traditional attack. It was basically, uh, we had this attitude determination and control system, and you could upload as a user uh, control gains to it. And those gains let you tune how quickly your control system responds, right? Do you want, you know, your satellite to slew at like one degree a second or 10 degrees a second or slower? Um, And... What we did is we didn't check the boundaries in flight software of any of those control gains. And you can set control gains to something that is unstable mm-hmm. so that when you give it a, a command to point, it just the satellite will spin out of control and it'll never, never work. That's, that's just how the math of control theory works. Um, and normally, you know, that's not necessarily uh, a, a type of check you would do on the satellite. It's often something that's implemented on the ground station, right? Like we're going to, we're going to assume that the commands we send are good. Um, and in a cyber, you know, it, when you're thinking about attack defense CTF, the commands you send are almost certainly never, not always going to be good. 
right? So uh, we allowed people to send these commands. The ADCS didn't have bounce checking. So, you know, especially Poland can into space, our winner from last year, they sent a lot of, you know, unstable control gains to other teams, causing their satellites to spin out um, and their flight processors to eventually crash. Uh, the control system had an integrator in it. And those unstable gains, if, if they were allowed to stay for too long, that integrator would overflow and actually crash your flight processor uh, with a floating point exception. Uh, which was very interesting and actually kind of unexpected by us. And there's also this possibility that the teams might actually find a zero day on the satellite and try to exploit that, which might cause some instability in the game itself. What's interesting is, you know, this little check, like this little assumption that the messages we'll send up are good. That assumption and the attack that came from it caused a lot of chaos in the game. When your flight processor crashes and is now not responding to commands anymore, it, it's really hard to know what to do when you don't know why, right? So teams were just seeing their flight processors crash and they'd see that their satellite was out of control. And, and it was really interesting to see, you know, the teams respond to that. And some of them were able to figure out what was going on and, uh, and come up with mitigations and, and others weren't. It was very, very interesting during last year's game to see that that little uh, attack we came up with sort of create this chaos um, and how, how teams dealt with it. As Mike mentioned, even last year, with the digital twin simulating conditions in space, Hackasat admins had God mode, where they could intervene if necessary. Is there a risk then with this live satellite moonlighter slipping out of control, spinning out of control, or wreaking havoc up there if somebody does something? Um, so there's no mo- there's no rocket motor on the satellite, so nobody is going to be able to like change the orbit of the satellite and have it go out. You know, go start interfering with anybody else. So that's good news. We can only change the orientation of the satellite. Um, however, the you know, I won't talk too much about how, how it works, but we have, um, you know, we have administrative layers in place between the game and, um, and the, the actual systems that will prevent anything from getting, you know, out of, uh, out of the situations we want it to be in. Um, so, you know, we're giving people a lot of control, but we're not just giving them, um, uh, direct access to every subsystem of the satellite. So Mike mentioned that there's only five finalist teams. And looking at that list, one team, Poland Can Into Space, has made it into the finals each of the previous years. That team actually won Hackasat 3 and placed second in Hackasat 1. Last year, Space Spits R Us came in second in Hackasat 3. The remaining teams were all new. But as evidenced by Space Bits R Us, which didn't take the finals for Hackasat 1 or 2, it seems that those new teams shouldn't be counted out, as surprises can and will happen in finals. I can't be sure, but I think all the teams have participated in Hackasat before. Um, it can be a little hard to say, because we know that like some teams from past years have joined forces with other teams to make like a, you know, an, even better, an even better team. Uh, but, you know, Poland can into space. I think they've been in finals every year. Um, they won last year. I think they placed second in Hackasat 2. Um, so, you know, they've, they're definitely, uh, you know, a recurring team that we see a lot of good stuff from. Um, you know, Space Bits R Us is 
our second place team from last year. They made finals again this year. Um, the other three teams weren't in the finals last year, but you know, they, if you sort of look at the qualification rounds from all four years, you'll see sort of these, these same teams in the top. Um, and it, it is very corollary with the teams that are, you know, top in other CTFs, you know, around the world. Nations that are represented by these teams have included the United States, Germany, Poland, and Italy. So teams are one thing, but there are individual players. And in looking back at past teams, the players have moved around. Or, for that matter, whole teams have combined to improve their chances. They've just either, you know, combined forces or added players. Like Poland, Kaninda Space is really P4 and Dragon Sector working together. Um, that's who they are, right? Um, and we, you know, we know a couple other teams have done that um, as well. So... You know, the, the top top teams are definitely recurring, um, even lower, you know, lower scoring teams. There's a couple teams that, you know, are in, say, the top 50 that I think if you go back, you'd see they were there every year. So we have a lot of you know, the teams that really play. I think we have a lot of a lot of recurring players um, who have come back, which is great. Right. It's uh, it's what we want. So when you're putting together a CTF team to go to DEFCON finals, you probably already know what you're going to need to bring. But when it comes to hacking a satellite, well, then we're talking about math and physics and orbital dynamics and things like that. To me, it seems like you have to have you have to have your traditional hacking people. Uh, you need to have some people, especially for finals, that understand uh, satellite ops and satellite op- ops operations. Uh, and you know, as we've you know throughout the years, we've made the satellite operations part harder. Um, and more realistic. So you've seen the teams get better at that as we go. They weren't thrown into the deep end, you know, quite as deep into the deep end as we could have thrown them in Hackasat 1. Um, so good satellite ops people. And th- that means they need to understand uh, the space physics, um, you know, and, you know, what what a satellite can do um, and, the, you know, what the, the constraints are on talking with it, like contact windows and stuff like that. So... When I talk with people who are part of the Plaid Parliament of Pony, which holds the record for the most CTF final wins, Ari, one of its players, told me that they were divvying up the tasks during the finals. That people you see on the event floor at DEF CON, they're working with teammates who are up in the suites and sometimes hammering out very specific problems for the team on the ground. Something similar happens with Hackasat. I know one of the teams last year, I was asking them, you know, how they, how they had it set up. And they actually had, they had like two rooms. They had like the satellite operations room during finals. And then they had the room that was focused on like reverse engineering code and finding vulnerabilities. And then when they had something they wanted to actually run on a real satellite, they would like go to the operations room and be like, okay, we've got this thing that we need to do. Uh, like how can we fit it into the rest of our schedule? Um, and, and that seems to ha- have worked a lot. Um, but I'd also say, you know, the skills start to blend. Like, I won't name names, but I, I've seen some people who are pretty prolific, you know, CTF players, and they're like solving space math challenges in quals. Uh, or, you know, they're they're trying to debug why in finals, why they're not, why, you know, their pointing of their antenna isn't right. Uh, so also great as we're seeing, you know, we're not just seeing it as, you know, I'll be the hacker and you be the space math guy. People are trying to trying to get this blend of skills, which is very powerful. 
I'm wondering if Mike saw in Hackasat 3 or earlier ones where people started to approach the problem all wrong. Are there some gotchas that can be found in Hackasat? Huh, that's an interesting question. I think at least what what I would say, and the finalist teams don't don't quite do this as much. Um, you know, they they tend to to figure to take their time to figure it out. Is when you don't, people sometimes don't understand the math, and they'll assume they have the right answer, and things are just broken. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know that we're not perfect, and sometimes things are broken, and we fix them. Um, but sometimes, you know, maybe you just don't understand the math and you need to do more, more research. Um, so, so the, the biggest gotcha we just see, I think, is people who, who need to, who need to keep learning the math. Um, but you know, the, the finalist teams mostly, you know, when they, when they're getting the wrong answer, they, uh, they assume that they're wrong. And usually if they come to you privately and say, Hey, something, you know, we think this is broken. They'll tell you why. And, you know, we always take, uh, whenever somebody says something's broken, no matter who it is, we always take it seriously and look into it. Uh, but the, the finalist teams are often correct when they tell you something is broken. Oh, that's interesting. So the teams can push back if they think something is broken or wrong, particularly if they're right. Sometimes, at least in the finals, they are. So given the space physics and the math, are Hackasat teams adapting to that or are they still sort of overwhelmed by it all? The other gotcha really is just understand understanding space jargon and like terminology. Like there's a lot of it. Um, and there's a ton of acronyms because that's how the, the U.S. government works, I guess. Um, and that's just a lot for people to handle. So I don't know if that's a gotcha, uh, but you know, it takes time to get up to speed on this stuff. You know, I have multiple degrees and a bunch of experience, so it's all second nature to me. Um, but, you know, a lot of these people are, you know, especially early on, you know, we're only seeing it for the, you know, the first couple times. So, you know, it, there's just a learning curve and we've really seen, especially with the finalist teams, um, you know, they learn, they learn pretty fast. There's just a learning curve, and we've really seen, especially with the finalist teams, um, you know, they learn they learn pretty fast. Finally, there's just the enormity of it all—the idea that you could hack a live satellite. Uh, I think it gets them at first. So, like in Hackasat three, for example, that was the first time we introduced contact windows, and we also introduced antenna pointing. Um, so, what you know, we did is we. We gave them about a week before the game, we gave them a digital twin and their satellite was in geostationary orbit and they had a big antenna cone, you know, like 120 degrees of range. So they just had to point it one time um, and then they were good, right? And then on game day, all the satellites were in low earth orbit. Um, There were a bunch of different ground stations and their antenna was like 10 degrees wide. So they had to, you know, they had to track. So that was like a, a gotcha we we threw at them early in Hackasat 3. Um, and you could see it right as the game started. Everybody was pointing their antennas sort of all over the place. And then you'd see, you know, one team would figure it out and start tracking. And by the end of the game, you know, we could see everybody tracking their satellites along 
perfectly or you know pointing at other satellites um so that that's a really good example of like where you know maybe they they didn't quite expect us to make it so hard um you know as as we we made it um but you know they all figured it out pretty quick um you know during Hackerset 3 you know by midday on the first day of that everybody was was interacting with their satellite pretty reliably well, I'd like to thank Mike Walker for taking the time out of his preparation for Hackasat 4. This is going to be really exciting, and it will be streamed. It will be carried live if you want to watch it from home. Or if you're at DEF CON, I'm sure you want to pay attention there. It's going to be in the Aerospace Village. Hey, if you're enjoying Error Code, tell a friend. I'm sure there are other people out there who like narrative information security podcasts. And I'd really like to hear from you. DM me at robertvomosi at infosec.exchange on Mastodon and tell me what you like and even what you don't. I have new shows coming up. Subscribe today. I don't want you to miss out.